cloud computing started to become popular in 2006 with the release of Amazon EC2, a system for deploying applications to virtual machines sitting on remote data center infrastructure. With cloud computing, application developers no longer needed to purchase expensive server hardware. Creating an application for the internet became easier, cheaper, and simpler. As the cloud has become popular, new ways of deploying applications have emerged. A developer with a web app today has so many different options. You can host your app on an Amazon EC2 server, which will require you to manage cloud infrastructure in case your server crashes. You can deploy your app to a platform-as-a-service like Heroku, which gives your cloud deployment better uptime guarantees for a higher price than Amazon EC2. Or you can use Linode or Microsoft Azure or Google Cloud. There's such a large market for cloud computing that the world of cloud providers serves more niches every year. In past episodes, we have explored a variety of different cloud providers and the markets that they target. Pivotal Cloud Foundry is for managing complex distributed systems applications, typically ones with large teams. Firebase is a cloud provider that simplifies the developer experience for applications with small teams. Spotinst is a cloud provider that emphasizes low cost. Zeit is a cloud provider that's built to manage applications through serverless functions as a service, like AWS Lambda. In today's episode, we explore another niche platform-as-a-service, infrastructure-as-a-service hosting tool with Netlify. Matthias Billman Christensen is the CEO of Netlify, and he joins the show. Netlify is a cloud provider that was built for modern web projects. Netlify represents the convergence of several trends in software development. You have static site deployment, serverless functions, the desire to have no ops development with minimal management, and the rise of newer tools like GraphQL and Gatsby. Matthias explores these trends in detail and explores the technical challenges of building Netlify. Matthias was a great guest. He was capable of talking about difficult back-end problems that require writing C++, as well as the front-end world of JavaScript frameworks. And he learned musicology in college, so he is quite a diverse thinker, and we went to a variety of uh, interesting fringe areas in this conversation. So I really enjoyed it, and I think you will as well. By the way, I want to mention my my voice is not quite good recording this preamble, but it's much better in the interview. So when the interview turns on after this first ad break, my voice will be much better. Thanks for listening. Matt Billman, you are the CEO of Netlify. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Netlify represents a set of fundamental changes to trends in web development that are occurring. What are the fundamental changes to web development that Netlify is built around? Yeah, I think, I mean, when when we started out building Netlify, we sort of did it because we, we, we saw a set of things changing the way especially front-end developers works and uh, and even changing what it meant to be a front-end developer, right? Like, so 
five or 10 years ago, a front-end developer was typically someone who, who got a PSD from a designer and then sort of sliced it into HTML and CSS and then handed it over to a backend developer that would actually turn it into the real application by integrating it in some large monolithic system like a WordPress site or a Rails application or a Drupal app or anything like that, right? And we started seeing sort of a whole set of things happening. One sort of happened around the emergence of Git and GitHub. Uh, that really popularized not just the idea of version control, but this whole workflow around work version control, this whole Git-centric workflow where before that, especially in the world of front-end development, right, like all the front-end developers I worked with before that was doing version control with endless folders called like version four, final for real this time and so on, right? And suddenly they, they started adopting like this this different kind of much more methodical software architecture of like committing and pull requests and so on and, and, and started getting even the expectation of that sort of triggering the build workflows and the deployment workflows and so on. At the same time, in the browser underwent this drastic revolution that probably really happened when IE6 finally died, right? And and we were suddenly had like Chrome and Firefox and Safari really innovating. And, and the browser essentially turned from a document viewer into an operating system running JavaScript and today even WebAssembly. That marked like this whole change where suddenly you you had like a client running in a browser talking to all these different services. Some were your services, but some were services like Stripe or, or Discuss early on or any of these services that you could just like pull into the browser. And then the third thing we started seeing happening was probably triggered by, by sort of the emergence of Node.js, where these front-end developers that were building up the skill in, in JavaScript and so on also suddenly started like using it for all kinds of other things and started compiling stuff, right? So suddenly suddenly front-end developers, again, like just underwent the massive transition from, from mainly just slicing PSDs into HTML and CSS to compiling complex applications with a real software application, versions working through version control and, and publishing them to, to, to a browser that's now like really an operating system, right? So we sort of saw those trends emerge and, and saw that that would mean, that that would start meaning a shift in the architecture of the web where you would really go from like a traditional architecture of a large monolithic application with the sort of traditional end-tiered architecture, right? Where you have a request coming in, it talks to a web server that talks to an application server that talks to a database that sends back some data, you take some templates, you build out an HTML, and then you send it back to the client and you do that for every single request. And you build a whole ecosystem around that, right? So you have WordPress where you have that flow and then inside that monolithic application, you have a WordPress plugin ecosystem, right? Like where you get like everything in the kitchen sink, you do it in Rails with RubyGems, right? Like where inside that flow, you have all these libraries that you invoke and so on, right? We, we moved for a long time towards these more and more complex backend applications. And suddenly we, I started seeing this, this potential shift happening to to sort of a decoupled architecture where the front end presentation layer would get its own pipeline, its own workflow, its own set of developers in reality, right? And where you would take that front end, pre-build as much of it as you could, and then put it directly on a, on a globally distributed network. Because if it's just the front end, right? Like you just want it to be available for an end user to, to load from the browser with the lowest latency possible, right? 
So you end up with an architecture where you decouple the front end, you put it on a CDN, and then that front end talks no longer to one specific backend, right? But to all these different microservices where, where some tends to be your own and some tends to be other people's services. Like, like, like I mentioned Stripe before is, was like an, an early example that, that just completely changed. Like so many times before that, I had been part of implementing like complex payment gateways and so on, right? And suddenly it just because it came a question of like, oh, just, make an API call to Stripe and you do the payments, right? And more and more the logic around that just moved to the front end layer. So that 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 was sort of the overall trends, right? And 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 with Netlify, we saw that happening and then we saw that 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 also kind of meant that the existing platforms that were built around these monolithic applications and around that way of working, they were no longer really tailored to this whole new world of of, of front end development. So we saw a big opportunity of really sort of drawing a circle around this Git-centric workflow, these uh, modern front-end build tools, and uh, and this uh, way of talking to microservices or serverless functions, and then building this like really coherent and tightly integrated pipeline with its own like CI/CD system connected to uh, what we call an application delivery network, which is sort of like. Traditional content delivery networks were always built to sit in front of something else, right? Like if you if you look at any of the of the CDNs, right? Like the the idea was that you put it in front of something, or maybe you put like very specific static assets on them, but typically they they sit in front of an origin, right? And we built sort of our own application delivery network that's meant to replace the origin, right? Like to just get away from this idea of having a web server that all your requests go through and just having this front end directly distributed on on a network. And so our key first insight was just that if we could make that way of working like really simple and really intuitive, then this new like architecture that we started to see emerging about like from really early adopters and things like the 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 work that they did around their Obama campaign with with like superstar team right, but building in this way and showing how it could scale and so on. We could sort of take that tendency and that architecture and make it viable for for pretty much every front end developer out there. I acknowledge all those trends that you mentioned, and you didn't even discuss tools like Gatsby. There's also changes to middleware, GraphQL. Absolutely. Uh, you've got you've got the backend serving layer, AWS Lambda changing. So there's all these changes. So before we let's before we get into Netlify in detail, you know you've been building businesses for a while. You are deeply into the the web front end, or it's not even fair to call it a front end anymore, but the changing world. There are a lot of people who feel this constant sense of change and and they're afraid that they're not building the right skills or they're missing out on building WebAssembly. How should the modern developer react to all of this? I, I just mentioned another you know dramatic <laughs> yeah, changing yeah. tool. How should the modern developer react to all this change? What should they focus on? Always, like as a developer, we in general... Development is still such a relatively new field, right? Like some, sometimes I've, I've used to think about it like as, as the state where surgery were at in, in like the start of the 19th century or something, right? Like we have like some 50 years of doing it behind us, right? And that was sort of the same time, right? Like a lot of the time the patient dies when we, when we try doing things, right? <laughs> and it's reasonable to expect that things, things are still at, like we're still only like 50 years into all of this stuff, right? Like 50 or 60 years or something, right? And, and, 
everything is still going to change a lot. So as developers, we have to, I mean, if you get into development and you really don't like learning new things, you'll have to find a very specific niche, right? Like there's still banks out there using COBOL and, and all, all of the ways people build systems today will still be alive like 50 years from now in, in some, in some weird niche, right? But everything will keep changing a lot, right? And a lot of us are trying to do like, and what we're trying to do with Netlify is to say like, okay, so for example, if we look at front-end development, right, like that's exploded in complexity compared to, to 10 years ago, right? Like in sort of the early days of front-end development, it, it was really document-centric. It was a relatively few set of standards. You could learn HTML and CSS and 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 that was it, right? And today we we really have like, real software architectures, right? Like Redux introduced sort of the whole idea of, of a functional programming view of the world together with the React paradigm and so on, right? And 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 we start having like ideas of like concepts like hooks and so on that are that are more complex state management solutions and so on that that's emerged, right? And of course that means that that the whole area like has more complexity also because you, you can do much more, right? Like, which is the other side of it, right? Like today you can, as a, as a beginner developer, right? Like you can grab a Gatsby starter template and in a few minutes you'll have like a globally distributed uh, site that can reach, like that can scale to billions of, of, of visits with incredible performance and with a platform that you can quickly iterate on and drive on, right? So the complexity is coming for a reason, right? It's coming because we're actually empowered to do more things. But it also means that that companies like us, or companies like Gatsby, or companies like that are that are innovating in this field, ha has a job to take some, like, to take the complexity from somewhere else and reduce it. So in our case, we're trying to take all of the complexity around the operations and the and the pipelines and the tooling and the infrastructure away from from developers. So they can focus on learning the, the complexity of the emergent field of, of building web presentation layers, right? And building the dynamic applications in the browser. So there's clearly a big vision for Netlify, but let's talk about the product surface area as it stands today. So the the product is mostly known as a static site hosting tool. Describe what static site hosting is and how that contrasts with more fully involved server-full deployments like AWS EC2. We had an early point, very early on, we, we were talking a lot about static, and we found that, that it tended to confuse people a lot because people associate static with like a brochure or something like that, right? And and the things people are building with Netlify, like if you if you go to app.netlify.com, that's a Netlify application, right? Like running on, on, on Netlify, right? So So obviously this is not about like, it, static in the sense of non non moving parts, right? The main characteristic here is is an architectural de decision of saying let's decouple the front end from the back end, and let's not mix the two together, right? And and that sort of we we've talked about it as as the Jamstack approach, like the JavaScript API and markup, where you say okay, we ship, we pre build whatever markup we can, we ship it directly to a to to a content delivery network. We use JavaScript as the main runtime in in the browser, and then we talk from the browser to all these different APIs and microservices, right? And from the beginning, what, what we've sort of said is that 
we didn't want to care about the tools, right? Like people should be free to innovate in, in the space of, of Gatsby or Hugo or Gridsum or create React app or Next or anything like that. The tools should be free for the developers to pick. But our idea was that we, if we were sort of religious around the architecture and say, if you use this decoupled architecture of splitting the backend from the front end, then we can take all the operational best practices, all of the CICD best practices, the, the whole the whole infrastructure setup and automate it completely, right? And 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 just say this is just gonna be best in class. It's gonna be distributed across all the different cloud providers. It's gonna be as high performance, as high uptime as you'll get. It's gonna be tightly integrated into your Git workflow and you just don't have to worry about it, right? But that really comes from from being more prescriptive in that area than AWS or Google Compute or anything like that, that that's for building anything in any way, right? So they can't come and say like, this is the architecture, right? And and our power, and of course that that's the limitation, right? Is to say like, okay, we picked this architecture. If you're building with this architecture, then we're just gonna, gonna give you the, the, the best possible setup you can get without any extra work. And then that, that architecture really goes beyond, of course, just the, the static assets. It's more this idea of, of having an application delivery network for your front end that's no longer a CDN sitting in front of your origin, but that's a replacement for your origin. And that includes, of course, like the the pipeline for publishing your 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 static application or your static files for your for your Gatsby site or your Hugo site or your React application. But it also includes the whole routing layer for talking to the different microservices, right? So we have a very flexible rules engine that's controlled with a little underscore redirects file in your repository or with a Netlify TOML file in your repository. And that goes through all the same CICD pipeline workflows that works with the deploy requests and so on, but that can drive things like in the really basic case saying like anything under API should go to this API. But in the more complex cases can pull into things like our serverless functions integrations where you can simply have a folder with your with your Lambda functions, we'll deploy them together with your front end, and then we'll completely sidestep the whole API gateways side of things and so on, and just use our globally distributed routing engine to invoke those functions for you and allow you to tie in the routing to those functions to our edge engine and so on. We'll be able, we, we have our identity service, for example, that was another sort of step of just seeing like, what are these patterns that emerge when, you, when you're working with this architecture? One of them, when you have like all these different microservices and you have a front end, right? Like one of them is the idea of stateless authentication where off zero pioneered sort of the idea of, of JSON web tokens, right? As a solution to that problem of how, how do we solve it when we have all these uncoordinated services that still each of them needs to know who are the user, right? So we built that into this application delivery network layer where where you can set up rules saying like, if you have someone that's logged in with a JSON web token that we can verify, and we see that that user has a role called admin, then show this content instead of that content or allow routing to this API instead of blocking that API endpoint and so on. And then we launched our own little identity service that can issue JSON web tokens, but as a blockable service where any service, whether it's off zero or octet that can issue JSON web tokens could, could be used instead, right? But all all built around this this architectural idea of like what what are the best practices? How should you how how should the tooling look like if you take this architecture and build with that? One way to 
categorize Netlify is as a platform as a service. And we have this lineage of platforms as a service. We have Cloud Foundry, Google App Engine, Firebase, Heroku. How would you differentiate your philosophy from the previous platform as a service companies? Yeah, I think the one that that kind of came closest to what we're doing early on we were sometimes talking about Netlify as a Heroku for a new stack right and and I think early on what what we saw from sort of a business perspective with a lot of the platform as a services with especially ones like Firebase and Pass that that got very strong developer adoption but failed to build like really big businesses around it was that when they were very prescriptive on the tooling layer especially around like saying you you use it with our database, proprietary database, so our managed database, right? That tended to put a ceiling in where they gave developers a very great Hello World experience and they became incredibly loved tools for like prototyping and quick iteration. But then once you were building things in like an enterprise settings, like there was just no way that like the, the existing like infrastructure, security team, like all like database team, any of those would be like, yeah, let's just put all our company's data in, in, in that provider, right? Because, in, is that because of cost or what exactly? I think it's more, almost regardless of cost, it's more about corporate structures and, and policies and, and which teams are you selling into, right? And I think it's hard to get a front-end team to go to a, a core platform database team and say, hey, we just put all our stuff in this other thing. Then like, why doesn't and, an AWS database have that problem? So I think once you have like a certain scale, like AWS and Google and so on, you can start doing it. And they did have that problem in the beginning, right? It took a lot of convincing for enterprises to move any data out of their on-prem data centers and into partners like like AWS and Google, right? So if you're trying to do that as a very small company, right, you you have a, a, a far longer uphill battle. Um, what we saw was that on the other hand, of course, like, when you talk on-prem, right? Like no one will go to Akamai and say, hey, can we have Akamai on-prem? Because the whole idea is the distribution, right? Like you want you want your content when you put it on Akamai to live in as many places around the world as possible, right? And we started- And you're not really seeing, locked in. And you're, and you're not really locked in, right? So, so we saw the same early on with, again, with being unprescriptive around the tooling and just taking the architecture, we could see this whole layer that would scale in the same way where you would want the best practices, whether you're like a, a lone developer putting up your, your personal block or whether you're peloton.com building all of your web properties with Netlify, right? Like we saw that there was like this area of the presentation layer and the front end layer where you want the best possible global distribution, where you where there's a set of best practices for the whole CICD pipeline that we can really optimize and so on. And that we initially saw this can scale all the way from from a great hello world experience for for individual developers but also up to to real corporate enterprise use cases. And that was one of the, that it's still one of the reasons today that that contrary to what Firebase did and what Pass did and what many others did, we, we haven't launched like our own database product, right? Like we, we are in that way, we, we tend to just work with providers like FaunaDB or with people putting their, their own APIs inside AWS or, or things like that, because we think there'll be so much more of a, of a hurdle to to take over the like that's where companies have really hardcore specialized operations teams and performance tuning teams and so on around around those data layers right 
it's harder to just say, here's a set of best practices that will work for, for anybody. It's more typical that when you reach a scaling point there, it's sort of the opposite, right? Like as your data complexity really grows and so on, you start moving into more and more specialized data solutions and you have more and more people working on tweaking in indexes and analyzing query paths and so on, right? And and that's not really where we where we want to be at. So, so in contrast to those earlier generations of platforms as a services, I hope we've been able to to strike a better balance of what can we actually provide as a service that will scale all the way from a developer to an enterprise and then leave out the parts of the platform where we think these parts people will have to to build teams around and will have to build expertise around and will have to scale individually. What you said about lock-in and proprietary special systems that are data intensive or API specific or proprietary in some way or another. You did mention you have an identity platform. You also have like a function as a service platform. Do those have a sense of proprietary lock-in to them? So, I mean, anytime you use a service, you'll you'll tie yourself in some ways to the service, right? Like we, we've been very explicit with our Netlify functions that we are simply exposing AWS Lambda and we're taking away all the complexity of working with it, right? But it's not like our own function runtime or anything like that. It's very clearly Lambda. And we're sort of betting and starting to see this verified that, that Lambda is such a winner in the in the functions as a service space that, that whatever they do will kind of become the standard, right? And we're starting to see people building Lambda Why compatible. is that? So what makes Lambda so special? Why isn't it Google Cloud the same as Google Cloud functions and Azure functions? I think the core thing is that they've done such a great job with the cold starts, right? Like where any other services is still behind in that aspect, right? So and literally latency. I think the latency is such a big part of why Lambda has like initially like rocked the boat so much, right? That the others sort of still haven't caught up in, in that aspect. And once you have, unless people use it to tie very deeply into other services, then the pure, like, then there's like this commodity aspect of the function runtime, right? Where whoever runs it fastest and and boots it up faster, it's where I'm going to put it, right? Like, so as long as SAWS has a head start there and it's doing a better job there, right? Like then, then there's a much higher hurdle for, for Google or, or Azure to convince people to integrate there, right? And of course, it's on, on our end, it's always something we're looking into, like adding Google Functions integrations and Azure Functions integrations, and, and we are interested in it and so on. But I still think that right at this moment, Lambda is to such a big degree setting like the pace for the functions as a service space. And I think it's likely to lead to, to things like we've seen, like people building on top of things like Knative compatible layers with, with, with Lambda that you, that, that are sort of starting to work and so on. And that I think are, are, are really strong from an idea of like, let's break the lock-in. And Who's and doing that? I haven't seen that. I've seen some open source projects around that. I can't remember the the names okay. of off the bat of my head it's like well, that's cool i mean anyway it's cool i mean we yeah, just did a yeah. show on knative for people who don't know that's like yeah. google built an open source serverless on top of kubernetes framework and what you're saying is that the first thing somebody's doing is building aws lambda on top of it precisely right I, it might not be the best abstraction because like right now knative feels to me still more geared towards running longer running sort of http services well, they're trying and to do so both on. And they're trying to do both, right? But it feels to me, having played around with it a bit, that that's still like the, the more of a sweet spot. I mean, I think the Knative strategy is, is really fascinating because the Kubernetes strategy from Google has been so powerful, right? 
and and I would like, I mean, personally, I really am a big believer in in having open shared standards and as little vendor login as possible, right? So I am really hoping for that sort of from for AWS Lambda to be not a monopoly, but but being just like something that gets copied widely enough that that we can work with all kinds of different provider and 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 I really hope there'll be robust, solid, deployable on-prem solutions as well for this. And I'm I'm pretty sure we'll see that happening over time. I just think that that AWS really pioneered the field, right, and have really been setting the pace for serverless functions with Lambda. So again, long-winded way of saying like we tried to not be like a very proprietary platform, but simply saying like okay, AWS Lambda is, is obviously becoming the standard here. Let's just make it completely frictionless to work with it and, and make sure you don't have to worry about like, how does my front end know where my Lambdas live? Where's the CICD pipeline for the Lambdas? How do I need to configure API gateways for all of my endpoints and so on? And just say like, you should just write the code and the rest should work as you would expect. The same with our identity service again, right? Like the idea was to really look at the standards, right? Like say, okay, the actual trend is to start using stateless authentication through JSON Web Token. We can make an open source service. We called we we made like an open source microservice called GoTrue that can handle like user registration, signups, and so on, and issue JSON Web Tokens. And then we're just running a managed version of that, but but all the code behind it is open source. And the standard it's built in is, is an open standard, which means that, as I mentioned, you can swap out our identity service quite easily for Auth0 or Okta or any other provider. We're circling through all these areas, and there's a, a distinction we could draw between the quote-unquote back-end area of all of this stuff where you've got serverless and Kubernetes and Istio and all of this back-end development going on. Yeah. And then the front-end open-source stuff with like React and you know, the serving layer and GraphQL and Gatsby yeah. and all this stuff. Yeah. But from the point of view of being CEO and looking at both all the, of the trends that are going on and the fact that you have to architect your own platform. You want it to run economically, so maybe you're yeah. running your own Kubernetes stuff. Do you pay attention to all of these different areas or, or do you try to focus on just the specific front-end layer? I've always had the the sort of special characteristic of being kind of equally interested in all of those areas. And I really, I've, I like having this sense of understanding the how things work throughout the stack. So so in what I've been building here, I've been switching from like, I, I wrote the first C++ plugins for, ETH, for Apache traffic server to power our actual CDN network, right? But I also wrote the first CSS for, for our application UI and, and set up the initial React infrastructure and so on. Now, of course, like I'm only writing code sort of at the fringes of, of what we do, always making sure that I'm not part of like a, a critical path for any feature to go out and so on, but more exploring on the on what's next for Netlify. And I think what what's the fascinating things of building Netlify is that of course our our end users are the front end developers, right? And we have to build a very strong empathy towards web developers and what are their challenges and what complexity can we reduce and what tools can we give them that that makes them more powerful. But we typically have to do it by building very complex infrastructure products, right? So, so we have to build on top of like 
our own globally distributed network of, of ADN edge nodes and our own Kubernetes clusters to run builds and managed microservices. And uh, we have to, to handle all the operations and DevOps and so on. So I, I think for me personally, I, I like putting that kind of like very nitty gritty deep infrastructure work in the service of a, a, a very like enjoyable developer experience and trying to build like figure out always how can we build the connection between these like complex internal moving paths to front end developers that that generally have enough with the growing complexity of the front end development universe and 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 like to to dig in there and then personally of course like you always have some trade-offs right like and my trade-off might be to not go deepest in any of the areas but but understanding sort of all the different parts of the stack do you run kubernetes clusters in multiple cloud providers yeah we do because we we currently only run uh, kubernetes in two cloud providers and and that's for our actual origin layer where like i mean when 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 we sell to developers of course it's all about the ease of use and the enjoyment of the development experience and like how how fast they can work and about their productivity when we sell to enterprises it's still to a large degree about like 10xing your developers productivity but it's also about like performance and redundancy and uptime and scalability and so on so one of the things we've we've built is is that even our origin servers are multi-cloud between two cloud providers where if all of google compute went down tomorrow, we would simply trigger a failover switch and we would start serving out of an AWS data center instead, right? Which has its complexity, right? But which is another another part of this story I was telling earlier, right? That if we can really say, okay, this is the architecture, then we can do sort of all the, the, the massively hard infrastructure work to just make sure that as a, as a client, you get all the best practices out of the box and all of the redundancy and all of the the multi-cloud capabilities that otherwise would probably increase your own internal development time with like 4x or something like that at least right i want to understand how your your perspective in business has evolved with netlify cuz you've been building some businesses for a while you you have an open source i'm sorry you have a set of things that you've built in the past you 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 actually built a cms in the past you also built a previous hosting platform i think was what it was called push bubble pop or something bubble yeah, web pop was like web the, pop, the, right. the cms <laughs> like a, a cloud hosted cms platform i had it written down i couldn't remember <laughs> but so netlify is is doing tremendously well i presume those other businesses had some customers but netlify is your is your best business so far how has your perspective on business and pricing and go-to-market strategy changed with Netlify? One of the fascinating things of, of just doing this whole journey is how much you have to learn all the time and how much your your learnings evolve, right? So I think if I look back at the version of me that that built my first startup and so on, right, like I would I would probably find that I was very naive in, in terms of businesses compared to to what I've learned since then. So the feeling you get when you when you hit the business that that where you really see the product getting like the kind of product market fit is very enjoyable and it's it and it can take like very very long time to get there of building and iterating and talking to users and being wrong about what you thought they wanted and figure out the space and so on and 
there has to be like a very like you, you probably generally have to be really really stubborn to just keep going and keep trying and keep figuring out the right thing and it takes a bit from figuring out the right thing to to figuring out that people also want it and so on but once you start seeing it you also see a very big sort of difference in 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 how people are receiving your your product and so on um some of the things you like that most product people and engineers need to to learn early on is just like this whole dictum that a product is not a company one thing is is having a product but another thing is actually building like how are people adopting the product how are people figuring out about it how are you going to not even selling and monetizing it right but how are you going to build a whole company a, a, around what you're doing is very different from building a product in itself and i think for a lot of product people that that takes a lot of learning that there'll be an a tendency for engineers to just focus on like is that something you failed at in previous businesses you were not able to learn about people i wouldn't say about people also because my background is sort of weird in that way i i studied the humanities and studied culture and people uh, first of all and for for many many years programming was just a hobby for me so i think it wasn't so much about learning people as learning business in a certain way and learning about how to integrate the movements of taking a product to a market into the product itself and figuring out those aspects that takes a lot of work also just learning like no matter how much we we think we're doing it learning how to find the shortest path to get something valuable into the hands of some users and then iterating from there has been really really important when i think about like product development in 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 this part now i i always think that the way we approach it now is like figuring out like a, a really really big ambitious vision and then sort of architecting down what's the smallest step towards that vision we could take that we can get into the hands of users that would be a step towards that vision just a small one and if people don't care about that little step then we might have to revise the whole vision in some way right like there should be this connection of of every part of it and you should be very honest with yourself about like if you if you have that vision and you put up these steps and and people don't care well then maybe you you, you have to to go back and and figure out like why don't they care if this vision is so good right like <laughs> You studied musicology. What's the difference between being a composer and being a tech CEO? <laughs> I would say the fun thing is that classical composers in the way were, were in some way some of the first programmers, right? Like they, they actually had to write down these these programs that, that a whole orchestra had to execute, right? And follow it's and like that span over time. It's like punch card level programming, right? And it's kind of fascinating that I do think there's some overlap in learning that way of thinking of abstract structures over time and of thinking how well they actually interact with people when they're executed that, that translate well to the programming thing. From the business side, I think at least like musicology also teach you things like getting up and conducting a choir and uh, and things like that, that, that at the time I wasn't super super aware of did you that, do that did you okay. conduct a choir i i totally had to as part of my education right like i i had to get up there and like and and conduct a choir i, I even got examinated in conducting choirs or or leading bands like stuff like that was part of musicology as well right those kind of things of course are useful skills to to have when you have to get a group of people to sort of follow the same motion and and go in the same direction and believe in the same thing Apart from that, everything is different. <laughs> 
Well, I wonder if it's you know if it's more similar if you're if you actually become a conductor and you are managing those musicians. Like if you, oh, yeah, I think that's that's another thing that I've always been extremely fascinated by by seeing some of the best conductors in the world and seeing how because I mean that's really a, like a conductor is to a large degree a management role, but real it's a time, very, total. It, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's real time, but it's also the rehearsals, it's the building in. And it's they're selling a vision, right? Like because if if you have a conductor, right? Like that goes up. Like imagine you're a conductor and you go in front of like the Berliner Philharmonica, right? Like you have like a group of hundreds of the most skilled, most like respected musicians in the whole world sitting there, right? And you're taking a piece of music that all of those musicians knows completely by heart and can like and it played hundreds of times. And now you have to come as a conductor and convince all of those hundreds of people at the same time that your interpretation of this piece of music is like the one they should really put their heart into, right? And and like seeing the very best conductors when, when they can do that, that's so incredibly fascinating because it's like it almost seems impossible. I have not, that... not only that, but you see them managing the emotions of the yeah. instrumentalists in real time. Yeah. They're like making eye contact with that person yeah. that they yeah. know messed up a note, and they're like giving yes. sympathy yes. Yes. while managing all 99 other Precisely. musicians. Precisely. And then they're also, like the best of them are also extremely good at giving space, right? Like they also know that, that okay, now there's this solo, and, and there is like this incredible musician, right? And I can try to make him play this solo my way completely, right? But that will probably not be the best expression right like i can try to instead instill a vision of how that solo should fit into this whole orchestral piece and then give that musician the right space to lift it and interpret it and and follow it right so i i could talk a lot about that the, the one of the really fun experiences i had that was uh, was seeing a, a master class with uh, with a conductor called uh, Kurt Sanderling, an old uh, conductor who lived in East Germany in its time and, and was like one of these like fantastic old like maestros, right? Like really schooled in old tradition and so on. And he was doing a master class with like eight young conductors with the with the Danish uh, Radio Symphony Orchestra instructing them, right? And I remember this one young Italian conductor going up, conducting part of uh, Tchaikovsky's fifth symphony for the orchestra, right? And he, he he put in so much movement and he was like really pushing and moving his arms and just gesticulating and getting them, trying to get him to follow his idea and so on, right? And in the end, Sandling say like this this passage, you, you, you don't need to do that much and so on, right? And he goes up and he's and, and he stands in front of the, this old man in front of the orchestra, the, the young conductor sort of steps back and he said like, oh, again, and then he takes like one movement, right? But he just like, he instills like this instantly as, as he starts it, right? Like you can just see the attitude of every single musician in the orchestra change from being there, being at work, right? Like following this conductor, sitting there in the close, right? To suddenly like everyone's vision just changes, right? Like everyone's gaze changes a little. And he just makes like this slow movement with his hand, like gearing through and it's just a question of his posture and, and and his like how he represents that movement in in one single gesture right and the orchestra sounded completely different right like everyone just came together the whole thing was different and you could see that young guy like standing behind and sort of shaking his head and laughing a little because like how the hell am i ever gonna do that right but it was like one one of these magic moments of of what it means when when someone can instill 
not just try to like micromanage a team of people to do this is this is what I want you guys to do all the time, right? But when someone can get people to believe in something and and instill a vision, how it can change what what a group of people can can do together. And when you think about yourself as an entrepreneur or an artist, you want to some degree, I mean, it depends on your maximization function, but you want to maximize the impact you're having. And if you're somebody like Hans Zimmer, you're having massive impact on millions of people. They're watching Interstellar, they're they're listening to the music, they're watching Inception, they're listening to the music, it's sitting with them. It's, it's helping them process emotions, they're going through advances in their lives because of his music. So you have the option to do that. Or you have the option to build something like Netlify, enable developers. These things are, you know, you ha- you have to make some deliberate trade-off. Why did you wind up making the deliberate trade-off towards being a tech CEO? So much of it is, is there's always an element of random chance in all of these things, right? But I had always like this, since I first encountered a computer, right? Like I, I had this joy of the basic idea that that you can write something that in its then in a way becomes an interactive universe right like you can write a little code people can interact with right and can do stuff right so it's like there was this life behind the screen once once you started writing code and then during the things I, I happened to be building in my career, I, I sort of stumbled into to this area of, of, of building tools for, for developers and front-end developers early on and designers and so on, right? And I think it, there's an amazing feeling in building the tools that other people build things with because you get to see what, what people are building with your tools, right? Like it's extremely fascinating once, once you start seeing seeing some other developers being able to build more than they otherwise would have built because you built something, right? And I think that that's the same people feeling that that drives people to write amazing open source libraries, right? And that drives that whole open source like experience of sharing code, right? That it gives you such a joy when you build something and you see that it somehow works as a multiplier for what other people can build. And, and that's still like one of the great experiences with Netlify from all the levels, right? From seeing like big enterprises build like big projects and drawing lots of terabytes out of our system and and pushing like tons of requests, but also seeing like we had this, we organized this Jamstack uh, hackathon together with Free Code Camp. And I love the whole, like everything that Free Code Camp does is, is, is amazing, right? Quincy is a longtime friend. Yeah, Quincy is amazing. And it was so fun at that hackathon to see like this group, like that's more of a, a beginner audience, of course, right? But seeing what people could built in a weekend with this kind of tooling from a relatively like fresh starting point in their careers and so on, that was super inspiring, right? And and uh, and really enjoyable. Better compound annual growth rate, perhaps, <laughs> than music. Well, maybe. Yeah. We'll see how many babies come from Hans Zimmer's music. <laughs> yeah. So back to business or Netlify. I want to know the hardest problem you've had to solve, whether it's an engineering problem, a specific engineering problem, charting the future, management, fundraising. What is the hardest problem that you've had to solve building this business? That's a tough question because like every step of building a, a Okay, a then let's focus is, on engineering. Let's scope it. Let's scope it. Just engineering so problems. Engineering problems, it, Netlify is a very big distributed platform, right? Like running across currently, I think we're using seven different cloud providers with like data centers all 
all over the world. And of course, like the core piece of, of nailing the architecture of, of how do you build an architecture that, that can scale from what I can build as a single developers into what a huge team can work out is, is probably also one of the problems I've sort of the most proud of getting fairly right. Like our architecture today is, is, is fundamentally the same architecture as when, as, as when I built the initial version of, of Netlify just scaled by many, many times, right? Solving that core problem was, was a lot of work, right? And was, was hard. And then again, as I said, like probably continually, like the, the most challenging problem we have to solve over and over again is like, how do we build really nitty gritty infrastructure solutions with a large distributed system as a means to an end to make the DX experience of developers working on the web really enjoyable, right? Like that's like a really hard because it goes all the way from understanding the concepts of distributed systems and infrastructure and optimizations and so on to understanding the the empathy with, with developers. So tying together like figuring out how can we make that connection between like design teams that thinks in one way and platform teams that tends to think in a very different ways and API teams and so on and get them to to together build a platform that's really oriented towards the end users but based in understanding what we can do from an infrastructure perspective. That's probably the single sort of like greatest engineering challenge in building Netlify. So synchronizing your distributed data sources and then synchronizing the development teams that are working on yeah. those distributed yeah. data sources. Yeah. yeah. And then scale. Like obviously like just constantly being one step ahead on the kind of like I mean we've had to scale our system massively, right? And why and isn't that a solved problem? Why don't why aren't auto scaling groups and auto scaling Kubernetes clusters and all that kind of be, stuff? Because what? it's all of the platform, right? Like it's your log monitoring system. Mm. It's like suddenly so. suddenly you start like throwing 13 billion requests of, of of logs into some system and it starts not behaving well right and like each of the step like there's a new system that that starts breaking and you're like now we have to reinvent that part of it right like it's because when you have these these massively distributed systems right like there's so many different components and each of these components needs need to scale and i mean by now we're we're reaching something like 100 million unique users every month from from our application delivery network right and and that's gone from like being two people bootstrapping in in march 2015 right so so that kind of of infrastructure scaling problem is is interesting <laughs> you've obviously shown a capability of building stuff you've also shown a capability of buying stuff because you're built on top of cloud providers yeah, absolutely what is a mistake you've made in a build versus buy decision? It's always hard to say, right? Like I think in general, I like the buy whenever possible, right? And I'm very aligned with our CTO in, in, in that aspect, right? Like we are, we're always like, if we can avoid building something, we should, right? Like anytime we can avoid building something, we can build something else instead that that, that apparently doesn't exist. So, so that seems to add more value to, to the world than, than building something that already exists, right? And then there are places that goes back and forth. Uh, right now, we're using a third-party provider for for um, the log streaming of our built logs to end users. And that's that's something that we are looking to have to rebuild internally because we're running into issues there and, and, and we get a, like, 
scalability issues in that area that, that the provider doesn't seem to be really geared to and where where we now can't do anything about them because they're not ours, right? So that's one area where we, on the one hand, took the, you, on the one hand, you could say you took the wrong choice, right? On the other hand, I would have to go back and say, like, if we had built that in ourselves, what should we have built it instead of, right? So all of these decisions are typically really tricky trade-offs in that way that, that at every part of your system, you'll have parts where you think, I wish I wish we had done this in a slightly different way, or I wish we had maybe had time to build that in-house. But a lot of these decisions are also reflections on like, what did we choose to do instead at that time? We had initially, we had some failures in building, like initially we, we built our own log uh, processing and log aggregation system. And then just quickly found out that scaling that system at the same time as scaling our right, the rest of our system was massively painful because the number of logs we ingested just kept like growing exponentially, right? So that was one point where we initially spent spent quite a while building it ourselves and then ended up going and buying it to to not being like let let's just not deal with that. The same the same happened with metrics today. We're using Datadog for for all our of, of our like alerts and monitoring and, and system level metrics, right? And and that's another area where that was totally worth it versus when we were for a long time trying to run our own platform, right? Like it's the platform that needs to tell you if you're up and down. And if you both have to manage the plat, like the uptime and scalability of the platform that tells you you're up and down and the platform that you're trying to verify <laughs> whether it's up or down, right? Like that's like doubling the work so that, that there we felt that even if the build is high, it was worth it for us to at a point say, let's just buy it. Well, we won't need to run a Datadog ad on this episode. <laughs> Last question. I know you're out of time. This is my favorite question for musician engineers. So we we have this world where you have thousands of engineers that contribute to open source projects. And yet, in the world of music, most songs are written by one, two, three, four people, maybe. Why don't we have better music collaboration? Why don't we have scaled music collaboration? It depends how you look at it, right? Because maybe most songs are, are written by, by one, two, three, a few people, right? But none of those songs stand like in a vacuum, right? Like most 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 compositions and most songs and most music is very much based on other people's music, right? Like there's always these subtle lineages of, of inspiration and of like ripping, like most song composers or whatever will, will learn that trait by learning and studying other people's music, right? And, and by reading the music, by playing the music and then adapting it a bit and finding their own voice based on that, right? But I think in that way, it's actually quite collaborative by nature, right? And it's always sort of been, even if the source code is not available, it's not so hard to reverse engineer music, <laughs> right? Like, and, and get the source code yourself, right? And and people will do that, right? Like in the jazz world, you always had like all of these classic, like the real standard books with like the chord progressions and scores for like all of the jazz standards that all of the jazz musicians would like get and learn and figure out and make their own variations of and so on, right? And in the classical world, all the composers would study each other's scores and go through those and so on, right? So I think in a way, music has always had that kind of like implicitly collaborative way of like learning from each other and and, uh, and understanding each other's code, right? And I think open source has some of the same effect on, on software, right? That all of us 
learn a lot by simply starting by by looking at other people's code and understanding it and and using their libraries and then start adapting them and start contributing to them and so on right so so in reality i don't i don't feel those two movements are, are so different okay matt thanks for coming on the show it's been great talking yeah great talking wow